1: Happy New Year. Welcome back to Surf Splendor for 2023. If optimizing your health is part of your ambition for this new year, or just part of your ambition for life in general, as it should be, then you are listening to the right episode. Felipe Pomar is committed and has lots of experience to share in that regard. And I have one crucial bit of advice to recommend. You probably already know what it is. It is the simplest, best-in-class, most efficient way to get your daily requirement of vitamins, minerals, and all round nutrition, and that is athleticgreens.com slash surf. Athletic Greens is not a synthetically engineered supplement, it is simply a blend of nine products, whole foods, superfoods in fact, probiotics, prebiotics, vitamin C, zinc, plant-based enzymes which help aid in digestion all of this is pulverized into a powder and a daily dose is just one scoop which you mix with water so you take it daily and you'll cover your nutritional gaps you'll promote gut health and you'll support whole body and mind vitality so go through our portal athleticgreens.com surf to support our work and to receive a one-year supply of vitamin d plus five free travel packs of AG1. You'll also get a 60-day money-back guarantee, which is reassuring, but I've never heard of anybody actually using it because AG1 just becomes something that you look forward to. So they'll ship your powder monthly at athleticgreens.com surf. Enjoy that, and hopefully you'll find some inspiration here today from Felipe Palmar. Enjoy.
0: Pensando. Cada dia, cada hora. Pensando en
1: ti. Caminando. Debonair, regular foot surfer from Lima, Peru, winner of the 1965 World Surfing Championships, and one of the 1960s most dependable big wave performers. This is all directly quoted, by the way, from Matt Warshaw's Encyclopedia of Surfing. So continuing on, quote, Felipe Pomar was born in 1943 to a wealthy Lima family and began surfing at age 14. He won the Peru International in 1962, 65, and 66, was a four-time finalist in the Duke Kahanamoku Invitational between 1965 and 1969, and finished second in the 1970 Smirnoff Pro. Each of these events ran an oversized surf, and Felipe rode in his usual fashion, squat, utilitarian, and nearly always mistake-free. He was the first Latin American surfing champion, and Surfer magazine wrote, quote, on the beach, Pomar is a quiet and soft-mannered Peruvian aristocrat, but in the water, he is a fierce gopher-broke competitor who faces the big surf like a matador working a giant bull, end quote. I've known of Felipe my entire life, and his name came up in my podcast with Jeff Hackman. Jeff mentioned that he and Felipe have the ambition to surf till 100, which has gotten so much interest that they've actually organized it into a program and a website so that they could share it with other people. And uh, when Hackman mentioned it to me, I immediately recognized that I should probably reach out to Felipe and invite him to be a guest on this podcast. And that was during the first week of March, 2020. I was in Kauai to record with Jeff and some other people and i was actually on one of the very last flights out of Kauai before the covid shutdown the airport was actually pandemonium my flight had gotten delayed eight hours so i barely made it out of there in time and this thought of interviewing felipe quickly got back and nearly three years passed then lo and behold last month an email came through with a subject line that simply said aloha the body of it read quote aloha david I watched and enjoyed your interview with Matt Warshaw. I just turned 79, and I'm still enjoying most big days of surf here in Hawaii. I have a message that I believe is positive and would be welcome news for most surfers. Feel free to contact me if you wish. Felipe, end quote. In that interview with matt warshaw in case you didn't hear it matt was explaining that he was content with essentially quitting surfing in his mid-50s so i was flattered to receive this email from felipe and i immediately replied to tell him so and to schedule this chat so this conversation actually took place in two parts we had a lot to cover so we recorded a few days before christmas and then reconnected again after new year's And that is how I will present this conversation to you, in two parts. Part one, this week, where we discuss general diet and exercise, why Felipe stopped drinking alcohol at age 19, winning the 1965 World Championships, losing a close friend at Pipeline. This was actually the first ever death at Pipeline, in fact. And then also the time that Felipe and his buddy surfed a tsunami. And then I'll deliver part two of our conversation next week on Wednesday, January 11th, where Felipe outlines surfing's origins in Peru. And again, not just surfing finding its way to Peru, but the actual origins of surfing itself, starting in Peru, dating as far back as 5,000 years. So, without further ado, I am thrilled to be able to share this conversation with Felipe Pomar with you. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy it.
2: You know, I heard Matt say that uh, he moved away from the ocean and that he's doesn't surf that much. And the message that I would give him and everybody is that surfing is such a wonderful sport and it gives you so much health and happiness that if at all, if at all possible, we should stick with it as long as possible. Could you relate to Matt at all? Yes. It happened to me when I was, I guess I was probably close to 30. And I had been competing for about 12 years. And I kind of had a couple experiences that were not good. And I was a little burnt out on it. So I decided to try a different sport and I went to the mountains to go to learn how to ski. So I felt that way at that point. And I can understand Matt's feeling that, you know, if you're a slave to something you love, at some point, it would feel good to feel free from it. But I would add that even if you're addicted or semi-addicted, if it makes you happy and it's very good for your health, then it's a positive thing. You know, I guess all addictions don't have to be bad. If you're addicted to your yoga or to surfing, it's a positive thing in your life.
1: Yeah. Did you... um... Find what you were looking for? Skiing?
2: Uh, I loved it. I enjoyed it tremendously. I did not like the cold. And uh, I guess I must have enjoyed surfing more because I went back to Hawaii. You know, I didn't move away. I just needed a break, I think.
1: It's interesting when I was listening to Matt and even hearing you talk about, about it, when I've felt depleted, it's not the act of surfing itself. It's all of the trappings around surfing, or it's my expectation that I put on myself to perform better than my last session. All of that stuff is very depleting. But the surf, the act of surfing itself has always been restorative. And when I do finally go, it's very clear instantly that it's restorative and that I need to make it a priority in my life, but it's all the things that I put on it and around it that I think make it less fun. Ultimately.
2: I understand. Yeah. The truth of the matter is that going in the ocean, you know, you come out feeling better regardless of what happened.
1: What are the things that you do in your life to get to the age of 79 and still be able to surf as frequently as you do?
2: A lot of it is probably that I always made surfing a priority in my life. So that meant that I took good care of my health. You know, I generally got a good amount of sleep. I ate healthy. And uh, all of those things are very important. And making surfing a priority made it perhaps more rewarding than than it might be to somebody that just gets to go once in a while.
1: Yeah. Tell me about diet specifically.
2: Is there anything that you avoid in your diet? I I don't eat red meat that often, very rarely actually. And I try to eat a lot of fish and I eat salads and lots of vegetables and eggs and lots of fruit. And for a while now, I've been trying to get all of my food in a within a eight or 10 hour window. So my first meal of the day is probably not until 11 o'clock or the middle of the day. And, uh, and based on the reading that I've done, there's many health benefits to all of that. Um, in, is that intermittent fasting? Correct, exactly. And are you feeling the beneficial effects of it? I take a lot of vitamins and I sleep well and I work out. And so the benefits I, I feel is that I feel good every day and I get to enjoy what I like, which is surfing. But I can't say that I felt a big difference or a big change. Okay. I think a lot of these things, you feel the effects in the long run rather than, you know, see a big difference from one day or one week to another.
1: Gotcha. How long have you been doing it?
0: Uh,
2: I imagine I've been doing it for a couple of years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I have a lot of friends that have a lot of pains and aches. And I don't have any. And it's hard to attribute it to this or that.
1: Yeah. Um, What's your back to diet?
2: Do you consume alcohol? I do not. I gave up drinking when I was 19. Whoa.
1: That's a long time ago. Was there an incident? Was there an incident that led you
2: to that conclusion? Yes. Yes. I arrived, when I moved to Hawaii, I arrived in the summertime, and the waves were very small. And then all of a sudden, we were in winter, and my good friend, Bobby Clulier, we were going to college together, so he came running, and he said, the surf's up, Felipe, let's go. So we put the boards in the car, and we drove down to Sunset Beach. On the way to Sunset, he stopped by the roadside and picked up a Hawaiian who, it turns out, his name was Kealoha Kaio. And at that time, he was one of the great Hawaiian big wave surfers. So we arrive at Sunset Beach, Bobby Cloutier, Kealoha, and myself. And the surf is huge and totally messed up. I mean, it is a stormy, horrible, huge day. And Bobby turns to us and he says, let's go out for exercise. So I asked, go out where? And he said, right here, right here, sunset. And so I said, you're crazy. You know, if you go out there, you're going to die. I'm not going out there. So anyway... Him and Kealoha went out and I stayed on the beach. And I was sure I'll never see him again. But they didn't survive, they came back in. And I probably had an hour or an hour and a half by myself on the beach to think about it. And my thoughts started out by saying, you know, I'm 19 years old. Why should I die? And uh, I seriously considered giving up surfing. But then I thought if I give it up, I may in the future feel that I did the wrong thing.
1: Hmm.
2: So instead, I decided to give it my best shot for 12 months. And I also decided I was going to get into the best health and the greatest fitness I could because I told myself if you drown it's much better to drown with the idea that you did everything that you could and you drowned which is much better than thinking if I hadn't been drinking and up up until late last night I wouldn't be drowning so anyway I gave it up at that age and a year later, I loved big wave riding. And so, you know, I stayed in Hawaii and st- stuck with it. But I never found a good reason to drink since I had already been without it for a year. And and I l- loved my life and everything was good. Wow, that's fascinating.
1: That's a, that's a lot. That's a very mature, um, long-sighted, decision to make for a 19-year-old kid.
2: That's true, but, uh, you know, it was a serious decision and it sounded much better than going out there and drowning.
1: (laughs) Yeah, 100%. A lot of kids, though, wouldn't connect drowning to having had a long night out before, you know, or they might not, they just would think that it'd be worth uh, risking that never thinking that they would actually drown.
2: Well, that's because they weren't sitting on the beach looking at what yeah. I was looking at. <laughs> totally. Allow me to tell you one other small story that ties in. Yeah, please. My first big wave gun I bought from two young people who came over from California to Hawaii to serve the winter surf. And they saw what the waves were like, and they sold their boards and went back home. You got to remember that in those days, there were no lifeguards, no jet skis, no flotation vests, and basically very few people on the North Shore. A lot of people paddled out and disappeared. You never saw them again. Really? As a matter of fact, my best friend from Peru also came to Hawaii and he was the first person to die surfing pipeline. Who's that? His name was Joaquin Miroquesada and his nickname was Shigi. And I think it was in 1966 or 67, he died at pipeline. Were you there that day? I had just left like two days previous to go to Peru for an international competition.
1: And was it, um, did he hit his head on the reef or did he drown or what was the circumstance?
2: Butch Van was a lifeguard at the time when the accident happened. And he told me that Shiggy had damage to both sides of his head. So he figured that he hit the reef on one side and the the surfboard must have hit him on the other side.
1: And Butch had to rescue him out of the water?
2: Well, Butch pulled the body out of the water. He was already, he had already drowned. Yeah. Wow. It was very serious back then.
1: I do want to discuss how you ended up in Hawaii, but we need to go all the way back to Peru. Um, I'm curious, surfing was in its infancy everywhere in the 50s. So I'm curious, what was your exposure to surfing in Peru when you grew up? How did you get introduced?
2: In the 1930s, a Peruvian man went to Hawaii. He witnessed people surfing. And so he decided he he wanted to learn how to surf. He met Duke Hanamoku. He started surfing and loved it. So then he heard that there was very likely gonna be the world war, the war with Japan. So he left Hawaii and went to Peru and took a couple of boards that I don't know if Duke gave him or he bought from Duke Hanamoku, but one way or the other, he took a couple of surfboards to Peru. And then the story gets even better. He searched a lot of South America for waves and he didn't find any any place that he liked. So he went back home and found great waves about six blocks from his house. (laughs) oh my gosh yeah isn't that amazing so he started surfing right there and soon many of his friends got into it and then they started a club well back then those were the boards that weighed about 80 or 100 pounds so they couldn't easily carry them. So they had to find a place to leave them close to the beach. And so they, start, you know, they got a piece of property and started a surf club so they could store their boards there. What was that guy's name? His name was Carlos Doji. And okay. the club that he started was, was called Club Waikiki. And a friend of mine took me Club Waikiki was started in 1943, and a good friend of mine took me there like in 1958, and that made me about 15 years old.
1: Was there any exposure to what was happening internationally at that time? Did
2: you have access to
1: magazines or newspapers that showcased surfing?
2: There were no magazines at that time. John Severson started Surfer, I think it was in 1960 or 61. So there was no magazines at that time. But there was a relationship between Club Waikiki and the Outrigger Canoe Club in Honolulu. And so every year, the... The Outrigger Canoe Club would pick a, the base surfer who was normally the Makaha champion. And so that champion would come down to Peru and compete. Those competitions started about 1954. And so that was the contact between Peru and Hawaii. And uh, there's always been a good relationship between Peru and Hawaii.
1: Got it. So at the age of 15, when you go to the club, you see what surfing is. Was everybody borrowing the same surfboards at that time?
2: Let me remember. That was at the time where people were making their own boards out of balsa wood. Okay. And since Peru right next door to Ecuador... It was pretty easy to get balsa wood, and uh, you know, probably around 1961 or 62, the first foam boards came down to Peru. I believe they were hobby
1: foam from Gordon Clark. Correct. Um, the balsa boards prior to that were they solid balsa?
2: Ah uh, Yes, they were solid balsa. Who was shaping them? My good friend who took me to the club, his name was Petey Block. He was a race car driver, but he also loved to surf. And he asked me, would you like me to shape your board? And I said, yes, please. And so he said, okay. And, you know, he, he had a soap factory. So I guess he shaped me the board at the soap factory and he gave it to me all done.
1: Wow, okay. So do you remember your first surf experience?
2: Yes. I remember trying to paddle out through the white water and getting pushed back and finding, wow, this is pretty difficult because it, the surf in front of the club is something like San Onofre. Okay. Although I had never surfed San Onofre, I've kind of seen pictures of it, but you paddle out through the white water. And so, you know, my first time, eh, I probably didn't have the right experience or surfing muscles. And so it was a lot of work to paddle out through the white water.
1: How did your parents feel about you getting involved in surfing?
2: In Peru, unlike many other places, surfing did not have a bad reputation. So my parents thought it was great that I was going to, you know, do something that was, when I was young, I was a little fat boy. And so my parents thought it was probably great that I was going to, go to this place and do some exercise.
1: Yeah, I think surfing's uh the stereotype of a surfer has evolved even in America over Correct. the decades. You know, there's times where it's been very regal and revered. And then times of course where it's Jeff Spicoli and burnouts who who do it.
2: Correct. When uh, I first got to Hawaii, the idea was still that surfers were beach bums. Oh, do you know that was back in the early 60s? What Everybody, brought you to
1: Hawaii, by the way?
2: I mentioned John Severson, who started The Surfer. He came down to Peru in 1961, I'm pretty sure. And he brought with him the first issue of Surfer magazine. And that had some beautiful pictures of Jose Angel and Peter Cole and Buzzy Trent riding waves at Sunset Beach. And back then, I already liked big waves. So when I saw those pictures, I knew I had to go there.
1: What was he doing in Peru?
2: He told me that he had done a lot of research on weather patterns and so on and so forth and that he had decided that Peru probably had some of the best and most consistent surf. So that's why he went down there. Did he find it? Oh, this is a great story. So he came down to our club, and, you know, we met him, and we kind of knew, found out what he did and who he was, and he was a nice guy, and he was a very good surfer, so we liked him. And one day he asked us, he said, have you guys explored the coast for waves? And we said, no. You know, we said, why would we want to? We got surf right in front. And then about half an hour, 45 minutes south, we got our big wave spot. So we got surf right in front of the club. And then we got our big wave spot. You know, we don't need any more surf. Why would we want to? And John said, well, you know, it's kind of nice and it's interesting and you might find something really good. So we didn't quite understand what he was talking about. But we knew that he wanted to explore. So we said, okay, you know, we'll go explore. So we organized to go south looking for waves and. We didn't find anything amazing, but we found one place that John looked at it and he said, there's a good wave there on, you know, on a day with a little more size. And we were looking at waves that were probably two feet or something. So we thought that John had gone off his rocker and yet he was right. That's today one of the most uh, desirable waves in southern Peru. It's called Cerro Azul. And it even got into one of the Beach Boys songs. I can't remember the name of the song, but he talks about different places and Cerro Azul comes up in the song. Wow.
1: Severson discovered it.
2: Well, Severson and about half a dozen of us, but he's the guy that, that, that that looked at it and said, there's a good wave there.
1: That's amazing. Yep. Who identified Chikama?
2: A friend of mine saw it from the air. And he informed, I was already outside of Peru. So he informed some surfer friends and they went searching for it. And they had a hard time finding it, but eventually they found it. And the guy that saw it from the air, his name is Chuck Shipman. He used to live in Hawaii, he's in Mexico now.
1: I'm curious about kind of how you entered the competitive scene and what your ambition was. Was there any potential career path to make a living off of surfing? Or was it just hopefully make a little bit of money on a contest?
2: Uh, That was before money in the contest. There was no money in the contest. Oh, Oh,
1: I didn't realize that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Let me remember. The surf club in Peru, Club Waikiki, used to organize this international competition every year where the Hawaiian top surfer would come down and compete. Okay. And George Downing had been down in Peru several times, and they had asked him what types of competitions should we organize? And he had recommended a big wave event and several paddling events. So the club in Peru every year from 1954 forward, would organize these international contests And there would be like a week of competition where every day there would be one or two events. Okay. And since I was a club member and I was young, you know, I was one of the things that all, well, there weren't a lot of my young friends, but anyway, everybody in the club would kind of compete because it was like a club thing. Yeah. And so I started competing that way. And I won the big wave event in a very big contest that they held in 1962. They actually referred to it as a world contest because people came down from many, many countries, but there was no organization. So it wasn't, what's the correct word? It wasn't accepted. As a world championship, but they named it, they just gave it that name because it was a big contest. Yeah.
1: Where was that held, the big wave portion?
2: Uh, back then, we had this one spot that was called Kontiki, And Kontiki was a big wave spot. So anybody who wanted to serve big waves would go there, and that's where the championship was held.
1: What, what were the waves like that day?
2: Uh, in sixty two they were big. You know, I can I never learned how to ride small waves because I went straight from learning how to surf, straight into big waves. So if the waves are ever small, I don't do good at all. But when the waves are are big, that's what I love. And so how big were the waves? They were probably twelve feet. Okay. Yeah.
1: So probably based on that win, you started getting
2: invites, I would imagine, to compete in Hawaii? Well, no, actually, the way it happened is I won the big wave event in 62. And then I left Peru in 63. And I spent the winter of 63 and 64 in Hawaii. And then I got an invitation to go back to Peru for the first official world championships. You know, the club sent me a round way, round fair ticket because I had won in 62 and they knew I was one of the top Peruvian big wave surfers and they wanted to hold the world championships of 65 in big waves.
1: And you won that event.
2: I won that event. I was very lucky. I, once again, you know, if the waist had been small, I would not have had any chance. But they had the biggest waves people could remember up till that point. So that worked out very well for me.
1: And that was classified as a world championship, correct?
2: That was the first contest that was organized by the International Surfing Federation, which was a a worldwide organization where all the surfing countries at that time were members of.
1: Yeah. Do you remember receiving the invite to the Duke
2: Invitational? Definitely. I was, so let me see. The contest in Peru was held in February. So I went back to Hawaii probably in June and then the Duke was held probably in December. So I had already been living in Hawaii for two winters and I had just won the world championships and I was the only foreigner invited to participate in the first Duke of Hanamoku. Wow. Yeah, it was called the Duke Hanamoku Invitational. And so they invited 24 people that they felt were the top 24 surfers capable of handling the North Shore. It was held at Sunset Beach and the waves were probably eight to 10 feet, or maybe a little bit bigger than that, but typically eight to 10 feet. It was not huge, but there were big waves. My friend Jeff Hackman got first place. Paul Strau got second place and I got third place. Amazing.
1: Did you uh, get to meet Duke?
2: Yes, Duke was there. And uh, it was a great event, and each one of us got a Golden Duke Trophy, which was very nice. So the trophy was not just for the winner or the first three. Everybody who participated got a Duke Trophy. Amazing. It was done very, very well.
1: Um, What were you doing for work during those winters that you were there in Hawaii? or were there any job opportunities even?
2: There probably were, but I was a full-time student because uh, the Vietnam War was happening at that time as well. And if, you, if I had not been a full-time full-time student, I would have been drafted. There was a small college <laughs> 10 minutes away from Sunset Beach. It was called the Church College of Hawaii and it was run by the Mormon Church.
1: What were you studying?
2: Well, that's an interesting <laughs> an interesting story. My friend Bobby and I were pretty much the only surfers at the college and we organ you know we loved to surf So we organized our schedules so that we took all of the courses that were available during the middle of the day. That way we could surf in the morning and we could surf in the afternoon. I did get a degree, but since it was a small college, uh, most of the degrees that people were getting were teacher degrees. And I didn't really have an interest in being a teacher.
1: Were you Mormon?
2: I was non-Mormon. I'm probably the only guy that was non-Mormon that stayed there for like five years.
1: <laughs> Just to take advantage of being close to the sunset? Well, that was my main interest. That's so funny. Pardon the interruption, but Felipe mentioned that his friend Chuck Shipman discovered Chicama from a plane. Well, it turns out that that wave is widely regarded as the longest left on the planet. It is 2.5 miles in length. And people say that it's actually been ridden successfully from the top of the point all the way through, but generally there's three sections to that wave, and surfers regularly get rides that are minutes long. So while a lot of other locations come into fashion, Chikama has quietly remained one of the most reliable and incredible surf travel experiences anywhere on earth. The planet. It gets consistent south swell from April through October and then can also pick up big northwest swells uh, from December through February. And our partner, waterwaystravel.com, can get you there. They've been sending surfers there for about a decade and a half now. In 2006, a few Peruvian surfers built a beautiful 19 room resort right there on the hillside with an infinity pool and rooms overlooking the reeling left. Of course, there's Wi-Fi, saunas, a gym, surfboard rentals, and surfboard storage, easy access from the airport, incredible food. And the guys who uh, developed that resort, they've actually been surfing and traveling the globe since the 1970s, surfing everywhere from Alaska to Zanzibar. And all throughout their travels, they were realizing that their home country had as much to offer as anywhere on the planet. So they came home, built this luxury resort, and made it available to you and I. WaterwaysTravel.com is how you get there. You know that Waterways are the leaders in surf travel and that they've been sending the magazines, pro surfers, brands for marketing shoots all around the globe since 1994. So utilize them, they're the pros, they are our friends, and they will help you score wherever you are planning to go, waterwaystravel.com. And congratulations to Jeremy Meichler for winning the RealWatersports.com surfboard giveaway on January 1st. We told you, we told him that he could pick any board from Reel's 1500 board inventory. And guess what he picked? He picked a Christiansen Navatimer an 11-foot part glider, part fish Simmons, an incredible addition to anyone's quiver. So anyone up around Pacifica in Northern California, watch out. Jeremy's going to have early access on any little lump of swell that rolls through from one foot to 10 feet, or beyond that if he's comfortable with it. But Real Water Sports is shipping him that board from their retail HQ in North Carolina. And while that seems like a colossal undertaking, shipping an 11-foot board, they do it daily. They ship surfboards all around the world for one flat low fee, and they can do it for you as well. They work with the world's best board builders like Christensen, whose boards are waitlisted otherwise, but you can find them directly on realwatersports.com at any time. Check out their incredible inventory of surfboards, from many shapers who we've interviewed here on Surf Splendor, along with, of course, everything else that you would need for surfing. Traction, gear, board bags for your upcoming trip to Chikama, foil gear, kite gear. It's all on realwatersports.com and they're great partners of ours. So check them out and enjoy. Can you tell me about, there's a real famous incident, the tsunami incident, right uh, on uh, October October 3rd, 1974. Can you tell me about
2: that? My same friend, Petey Block, the guy that took me to Club Waikiki and shaped my first balsa board. He had a house at this place called Punta Hermosa, which is a little town south of Lima. And since he was my best friend and I'm from Peru, I would go, I lived in Hawaii, but I would go back to Peru for a month or two every year. And that particular year, you know, just like today, some people are trying to ride the biggest waves, the biggest wave. and. I was one of the guys at that time that was trying to ride the biggest wave. And we had found a wave in Peru that I thought might get bigger than Waimea. And back then, Waimea was the big wave spot in Hawaii. So if I was able to ride a bigger wave than Waimea, I would have ridden the biggest wave in the world back then. And so my friend Petey and I were training and hoping that this place called Pico Alto would break, you know, very big, bigger than Wyoming. And we were training every day, getting ready for it. Because, you know, the thing about surfing, you never know when the waves are going to be big. So you got to be ready all the time. And so we were training for it. But this one day, the surf was very small, but we decided to paddle out anyway, you know, because if you're training for surfing, we were running and doing push-ups and doing sit-ups, but we were also surfing a lot. So this day, the surf was very small, but we decided to go out and catch some waves anyway. And we put on our wetsuits and we had our, our, our boards under our arm and we were maybe 20 feet from the water on a walkway and all of a sudden the grounds, no, first of all, there was this amazing noise. It was like the loudest noise you ever heard. You know, pretend that there's a railroad, a foot behind you and there's a train going by but now it's not a regular-sized train. It's a huge train. And, you know, you're, you're right next to it. I mean, something like that, but even much more so. Interesting. So first, first of all, there was this amazing, incredibly loud noise. And then all of a sudden, the ground started shaking. So it's kind of a long story, but to make it a little to condense it, the earthquake lasted like a minute and 48 seconds. And for a while I thought it was the end of the world. Cause you know, yeah. when there's an earthquake, you tell yourself, relax, you know, it's an earthquake. It will soon be over. But as walls fall all around you and it doesn't end, And you keep thinking it's got to end, it's got to end, but it doesn't end. Eventually, you start wondering, you know, well, if it's not an earthquake, what is it? And what came to mind in my case, well, if it's not an earthquake and it doesn't stop, it's probably the end of the world. But eventually, it did stop. And so I went back and found my friend because he had ran off. And now we're walking back to his house, which is very close by. And he says, we can't go to Lima. Lima is the capital. And I say, why can't we go to Lima? And he said, because the last big earthquake, eh, there were fires all over Lima. So, you know, we can't go there. And I said, okay, you know, I guess if there's going to be fires everywhere, yeah, we can't go. So then he asked me, what should we do? And, you know, considering that we were training to ride the biggest waves in the world and that there had just been this huge earthquake, you know, I said, let's go surfing. (laughs) And I thought he was going to say, you're crazy. And had he said that, I would have said, "Okay, you know, and we would have done something else. But I said, let's go surfing, and he said, okay. So I thought, wow, he's willing to paddle out with me. And I said, yeah, you know, we don't have a lot of time to think about it because, you know, the tsunami could arrive anytime. Oh, and then I thought, okay, but if we go out, how big can the tsunami be? And I had lived in Hawaii by then about 12 or 15 years, and there had been half a dozen tsunami alerts. And most of the tsunamis that had come in were very small. So, you know, considering that, I thought, okay, how big could this tsunami be? I thought, well, it could be 10 feet. And yeah, maybe it can be bigger, maybe it can be 20 feet. But I thought, I've surfed 20 foot waves and you know, we're looking for the biggest waves in the world. So yeah, let's go out. So we paddled out and it turned into a horrible ordeal where once we got sucked out about a mile out and there were, the ocean was doing things I had never seen before all of a sudden my idea that the tsunami waves could be 10 or 20 feet, that story changed. And as far as I w- was concerned, the tsunami could be anything. It could be 50 feet, it could be hundred feet, it could be whatever. And so then it got, it turned into a very scary experience.
1: When you say you got sucked out a mile, it was just the water was surging back that far.
2: What happened was we paddled out and my friend Petey got a wave, you know, shoulder high. And he paddled back out and he said, I want to go in. So I said, why would you want to go in? We just got out. And he said, no, that little wave just held me down longer than I've ever been held down before. You know, this is weird. I want to go in. So I said, okay, well, at least let's catch a wave in. You know, let's at least wave and catch a wave in. So he said, okay. So now we're sitting there waiting for a set. And he says, Felipe, there's a current pulling us out to sea." So I said, well, that's not good. You know, we better go in. So I started paddling towards shore. And as I'm paddling towards shore, I turned sideways and I looked towards something that was, there's an island there. And so when I fixated on the island, I realized that I was paddling towards shore, but I was going out to sea. So then I decided, of course, to paddle harder. And now I was paddling as hard as I could. And I looked sideways and I was still going out to sea. So I decided, well, you know, there's no sense in paddling. I, I decided I'd better do some deep breathing and relax so that I could make the right decision whenever we had to make some decisions. We got pulled out about a mile, and a mile out at sea there were these whirlpools coming off the bottom. You know, very strange. You certainly, I had certainly never seen anything like that in deep water. And there were chop, you know how chop is normally a foot or a foot and a high, tall. And they got a certain pattern. Where we were, the chop were maybe eight feet high, and they had no patterns. So they were at once coming, moving in every single different direction. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it was very freaky because it's stuff you've never seen before. And, uh, okay, so my friend said, let's look for a ship. And I had, I had been surfing there for many years. I had never seen a ship. So, you know, I said, hey, you know, if we're looking for a ship, that's not going to appear. So I said, no, what we got to do is we got to paddle across the bay. And on the other side of that bay was Kontiki, which I've mentioned was our big wave spot. And Kontiki breaks out close to a mile out, you know, maybe three quarters of a mile. So I figured if we could cross the bay and get to Contiki, we could catch a wave there and that wave would take us most of the way in. So that's what we did. And uh, as we paddled into the Contiki break area, a wave came. And remember that I said it was a small day and the surf was... The wave my friend got was like four feet, shoulder high. Well, the wave that came, you know, was as big as a house. It was big, but it was, you know, it was not 50 feet. But at that point, I wasn't interested in how big the wave was. I was interested in catching it and getting to shore. Of course. Right. So again, I'm. I'm summarizing some because otherwise it's a very long story. So I caught the wave, I surfed it for a while, I proned out and now I was finally close to the beach. And as I was paddling towards the beach out of the corner of my eye I saw something unusual and I turned around, you know, turned sideways to look. And It was a wave that was hurling a fishing boat through the air. The wave was tossing the fishing boat through the air and the fishing boat impacted on a cliff. And in one second, it went from being a fishing boat to being small pieces of wood. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And upon seeing that, I told myself, don't even think about that. Just paddle to shore. And once you're on shore, you can think about it. And so I was totally focused on getting to shore. And I was fortunate that I did get to shore. And now my friend was, you know, he probably caught the next wave. So he was a little bit behind me, but I was already on shore and he was not on shore yet. So I kept hoping that he was going to make it and he finally made it on shore. And so now we started hugging each other and dancing together. (laughs) We were so happy to be alive and be on solid ground, you know.
1: Man, did he hold it against you that you came up with that idea?
2: He never told me he held it against me, no. <laughs>
1: um, was there anybody on that boat?
2: Uh, I never found out. I I have no idea, you know. I mean, that was on a cliff. Okay, this is why I never even checked on it. So Petey and I are hugging each other and we're dancing together on the beach because we're overjoyed to be alive. And while I'm dancing with him, I look at the ocean and I notice that it's receding again. So I I stopped dancing and I yelled, run, run. And we grabbed our boards and we ran, you know, away from the side of the ocean because Obviously, it was receding again, and it was probably going to come back. And yeah, for, yeah. The, for the rest of the day, the ocean kept doing that. As far as I know, the biggest push happened when we got those waves. And from then on, it kept kind of settling. So we'd go back. It would go back out, recede, and then it would come back in. But each time was a little bit less. I've got to say, that was a terrible idea. (laughs) It was a terrible idea. But since we survived it, it turned into a fabulous story. But here's the other interesting thing. Although it was a fabulous story, I never told it to anybody for like 10 years Because dozens of people died from the earthquake. Yeah. So I felt, you know, for me to tell this story when all these people have died is not right. So I really never told the story until about 10 years later. A surf journalist asked me what has been your most unusual surfing experience. And so, you know, 10 years later, I was okay with telling the story.
1: I mean, it sounds like you were two of very few people on the planet who could have survived that situation, to be honest.
2: That may well be. You know, I'm sure anybody else would have probably panicked. And once you panicked, it's pretty much all over.
1: I mean, a mile out is essentially lost at sea. A mile out is a very long way. And when it's uh, doing all of that crazy stuff, especially I would presume there weren't leashes. So if you lose your board, yeah, if you lose your board on an eight-foot chop, you don't even have to catch a wave.
2: Hold on. Uh, I'm wrong. I remember I had a leash. And so while I was paddling from a mile out to cross the bay, that was one of the big questions in my mind. I thought, you know, if a 50-foot tsunami is coming at me and I'm looking at it, should I take off the leash or should I keep it on?
1: Okay. Well, I was thinking about your friend that you said caught the shoulder-high wave and then fell and was held down for a long time. I was wondering how he got his board back. Correct. He, he had a out. leash as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Still, still a terrible idea.
2: (laughs) Correct. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, if anybody asked me, I would say, you know, if you know that there's a tsunami coming, run for the hills.
1: Yeah, well, the other thing is a tsunami doesn't look, the wave itself doesn't look like the Hollywood movies where it's a vertical face barreling and rideable. It usually just looks like a surge of water. You know, and so I don't know that you would even necessarily be in the paddle out far enough to catch it before it breaks. Or, or how would you even know where
2: to catch it? All of that is true. However, if you saw videos of the Japan tsunami, you know, the huge one. Yeah, they were perfect. Huge breaking waves.
1: I don't know, though. Even if it's a spot that you've surfed before, does it break in the same spot?
2: It might break, you know, two miles out to sea or something. Absolutely. It was was a very bad idea. On the other hand, it was an adventure. You know, I didn't know it was going to turn out to be as difficult as it was. For all I know, we could have just paddled out and had a nice six or eight foot waves coming yeah. and uh, so it was it was a very bad decision based on overconfidence yeah because we were very fit and we wanted to do something you know we wanted to surf huge waves and we had to make a fast decision had we had an hour to sit down and discuss it we might have made a different choice yeah. What was that loud sound that you heard? That was the, the, that was the land moving. Does
1: Lima sit on a fault line or something?
2: I know that Chile and Peru have earthquakes pretty much every year. And so obviously there must be fault lines close by. Okay. Let me say this. I wouldn't do it again. Oh, I take it back. I have done it again. There had been a tsunami in the South Pacific. And we knew that the tsunami was moving towards Hawaii because it had hit and done some damage on some other islands. However, you know, the. The news was not that there were 100-foot waves, but, you know, the news was that maybe there were big waves, but not, you know, not something incredibly big. And the tsunami was supposed to hit the North Shore of Oahu. I can't remember if it was 11 o'clock in the morning or something like that. And, you know, the news was that everybody should abandon their homes along the beach and go up to higher areas. So they were evacuating the whole North Shore. And the surf at sunset was fantastic, you know, maybe eight to 12 feet in perfect conditions. And so a group of us was surfing sunset as they were evacuating all of the, the coast. And most people started leaving. And eventually there was only like five of us left surfing, but I was one of the five. Wow. And the tsunami hit and it did some damage at the boat harbor and so on and so forth but the tsunami was not as big as a 10 to 12 foot wave so the people that were surfing eh, all you know we just had some great waves to ourselves and we didn't feel the tsunami at all wow fascinating I'd rather be a than a yes I-
1: Felipe Pomar ladies and gentlemen as I've stated uh, we've got much more to discuss in part two that we will share next week Uh, Felipe outlines surfing's origins in Peru and again not just how surfing found its way into Peru but the act of surfing itself starting in Peru as far back as 5,000 years ago if you can believe it He also tells us about walking away from an opportunity in Hollywood at MGM Studios. And he also explains why surfing till 100 requires rethinking his approach to relationships, to his role in the community, and not just focusing on his physical health. Lots more from a man who has already dedicated 66 years of his life in the ocean. You can find imagery of everything that we discussed on surfsplendorpodcast.com, where I've also linked to Surf Till 100's website. They actually have a newsletter where Felipe and Hackman send out info related to what they are doing there. So sign up for that if you're interested. I've also linked to Felipe Pomar's Instagram account if you'd like to follow and connect with him there. And then you can also see our entire archive of seven different shows that we produce here under the Surf Splendor Network. Spit with Scott Bass, of which there's almost 300 episodes of. Uh, The Grit with Chaz Smith, there's almost 200 episodes of. Hardcore Surf History, Surf Stories by the Florida Surf Film Festival, Swell With My Soul by Donald Brink, The Plug with Justin Jay, and The Boardroom Show, hosted by Scott Bass. And we're also publishing these new episodes of Surf Splendor on YouTube, so you can see Felipe talk rather than just listen. And of course, follow it all on Instagram at Surf Splendor. All right. It is with much gratitude for being able to have these conversations and to do such enjoyable work that I, David Scales, for Surf Splendor, sign off by reminding you to invest in your best self by getting back into the ocean, sharing a couple of ways, and shredding onward. See you next week. Man, this is really great. I'm glad, and I'm glad to be able to uh, to pick it up next week, too. That'll be awesome.
2: Very good. I'm enjoying it as well.
1: Perfect. Thanks, Felipe.
2: All right. Aloha.